Hallo, Fred Wasser hier, so Ronald McDonald of Formula One. People say that I am the nicest team boss in the pit lane. That I laugh a lot and enjoy making funny jokes. They say I'm too nice to win in Formula One. But look who's laughing now, mother as I'll show you nice. Welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, and he's Zog. Hello. Just you and me, like old school Gareth Jones on Speed. Where are the other two reprobates? Uh, on holiday, I think, or uh, uh, slacking off somewhere. Slacking, yes. It's not good enough, you know. We expect more from them. Actually, respect to Sarah, who's having a very nice time in Cyprus, I think, at the moment. And if I could, I would as well. And massive respect to Alex, who's in Marrakesh, volunteering help with the disaster there. So I think we can allow them time off Gareth Jones on speed. I think so. Yeah, those reasonable excuses. Yeah, good for you, Alex. While they're away, I wonder if they've both been watching Formula One because it was a treat at the Singapore race over the weekend. How much did you enjoy that, Zog? Well, yeah, that was the best race for a long time. You know, I think we've been saying that while we've you know, enjoyed a lot of the other races this year, you get a little bit tired with Max winning all the time and having to find your drama further down the field. This was a proper race. Red Bull didn't really have the speed this weekend, certainly to guarantee a place at the front. Both Red Bulls failed to make Q3 in qualifying, which is quite a turnaround. Ferrari were quicker, Mercedes were quicker, McLaren were quicker. And as a result, we had a... You know, although a slightly quiet start, the race built up to a tremendous finish. Very, very hard fought at the end. We really didn't know who was going to win. Could have been Science, could have been Russell, could have been Hamilton, could have been Norris. Could conceivably have been Verstappen at some point, yeah, but uh, yeah. but that didn't happen. And uh, no, we had an absolute crack of a race. Very exciting. I think, unfortunately, it'll be a bit of a reversion to what we've seen for most of the rest of the year when we go to. Suzuka next yeah but at least shows that you can have a different kind of race and you can have drama all the way down the field it'd be nice if we get a bit more of it later in the year interesting that you said that you know McLaren were faster Mercedes were faster Ferrari were faster that suggests to me if all of them were faster even Alpine that it was actually Red Bull who were slower at this race and I know there's been a technical directive recently from the FIA to limit some of the clever tricks that some of the teams have been using to allow flexible bodywork or aerodynamic work on the top surface or underneath the car. And Christian Horner was very clear. He said, no, it's the same car. We're running last, you know, we made no changes. I think he protests too much because... What other reason could there be for Red Bull suddenly not being way ahead of everybody else? I know that the strategy that they were on was slightly defeated by an early safety car, and that disadvantaged them overall. Sure, But yeah. they were noticeably slower, weren't they? 
Uh, they were, but I think with the important caveat that neither of us really knows. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, it seems to me like you don't get this kind of step change in relative performance without several things coming together. You know, it takes more than one factor for Red Bull suddenly to go from being definitely the car that's going to win this week to the car that's struggling a little bit. They haven't even got both of their cars into Q3. Okay, granted, that wasn't a pure pace thing, but nonetheless. And going to a position where they're clearly struggling a little, you know, clearly struggling over the weekend. It it takes several things. It's not a single thing. On that aero issue you mentioned, this aero directive that will affect the teams, I take at face value what several people had said, that uh, yes, this will affect Red Bull, but this track, Singapore, is actually one of the tracks where it will affect them a little bit less. So if you're looking for, you know, the source of a big difference, that's probably not it. Like I said, I think it has to do, you know, other teams stepping up, I'm sure is part of it. Another factor I think is simply that Singapore is a slightly tricky circuit and one that maybe, probably in a couple of ways, doesn't suit Red Bull quite so well. It's very bumpy. As a result of it being very bumpy, they can't apparently run the car in quite the same way that they normally would. They have to raise the back of the car a bit more than they normally would to avoid it bottoming out so much doing that slows them down but also in in doing that for this weekend in making the setup changes and in adapting the setup for Singapore they maybe were in an operating window that was a bit difficult they didn't make the best decisions that they could and they struggled over the course of the weekend to get that setup right they probably could have been quicker but yeah they didn't get their setup right at any point and were kind of on the back foot as a result of that everyone else stepping it up a bit. That's why we saw such a difference. (laughs) And isn't it wonderful that we did? Yeah. That was a glorious end to the race. The fact that Red Bull are now not going to win every race this season. Part of me is very, very, very glad. Yeah, come on. But actually, in a similar way, a little part of me is thinking... Oh, it would have been a heck of an achievement for that team to do that on a season that is so long as well. You know, McLaren almost did it when in the 80s, where they won 15 of 16 races. They could still, you know, in terms of percentage, if they win the remaining races of this season, Red Bull can still technically outperform McLaren's record. You yes, because there are more races in the season, quite yeah. right. Yes, yes. So let's see, what's a 15-16ths, Zog? You're good at that sort of thing. Okay, 15-16ths... In terms of a percentage. ...is the same as a quarter of 15 quarters. So that will be 3.75 quarters. This is a really bad way of working at 3.75 <laughs> quarters. Is that right? What's 3.75... T- uh, I'm going to work it out. I'm going to use a calculator. (laughs) Here we go. Um, Where's my calculator? Uh, 15, okay, 15, 16. No, I've got... (sighs) I'm going to tell you. It is 93 and three quarters. 93 and three quarters. Okay, very good. Well done. Good, good, good. Uh, So McLaren's record, they're like 93.75% of the season and there are what 24 races this season is that right yeah 24 okay well with the, if the trophy race is 24 is nearly 25 so one in yeah. 25 is uh four percent 
Yeah, uh, sure. So, so they can win 96% of the races, give or take a small rounding error. Yeah. So, the, yeah, they can win, uh, so they can get 96% of the races this year. Yeah. Which would be very impressive. But hey, what would your uh, guess be? Uh, Red Bull super dominant again next weekend, or have we seen a seismic shift? Have we seen a fundamental realignment in dynamics for the rest of the season, and it's going to be all shaken up again next race? I don't, honestly, know. What I do know is that the next race is Suzuka, and that Red Bull have a Honda engine, even though it's Red Bull Honda engine. And there's a tradition with Honda, isn't there, of producing what they call the Suzuka Special, where they always put the best possible engine they can in the car for the Suzuka race. So they're going to be compensating for any inadequacies with sheer grunt. I don't know. Maybe they've decided to turn down the power for the car for Singapore to make sure that they don't get penalties later on. They're playing a, a longer game for the... Cha- you know, they know Max is going to mm-hmm. get the championship. Okay. They don't want to jeopardise it. That's just one theory. I don't know. I really don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the other teams are able to match Red Bull because if we're treated to an end of a race like we just were... I mean, Ferrari did the same thing. You said in the last show they pulled out all the stops to win at Monza. You know, they turned up the engines and all that. Honda may do the same in Suzuka. But this revival of Ferrari at the moment, can we have a very gentle round of applause for King Carlos Jr. for getting his first win for Ferrari? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I've been very impressed by the way science has improved. I think you know when yeah. Leclerc came to Ferrari, it seemed like Leclerc was you know the new number one at Ferrari. Yeah, and science was a yeah you know, a, a good, but nonetheless definitely a number two. But really, he's come on so well. I don't know whether it's just that their partnership is a particularly productive one that they're helping each other improve and helping the team improve or whatever it is or maybe it's just the way the car's going is suiting science a bit more but no he really has been tremendously impressive in the last couple of years really stepped it up and that's a phenomenal pairing that ferrari have got now they should be very very happy with the way both their drivers are performing and oh and, and and let's give credit to science for being as smart as he was with not pulling away from norris anymore at the end of the race, he allowed Norris to just keep in touch so that Norris would still have DRS, which meant that the Mercedes that were pursuing Norris wouldn't then be able to get the jump on Norris and then they would have DRS and, and he wouldn't. Lost it was really smart. No, no, science drove absolute blinder. I can't remember anything quite as brilliantly tactical as that in recent years. That is Prost levels of thinking and I'd love to know if it came from Carlos or it came from the team but you know Carlos and Norris who was immediately behind him were old teammates at McLaren they're good allies and they seem to remain allies despite being in rival teams Uh, incredible apparently yeah good for them good for them we should also say how heartbreaking it was for Russell to have his crash at the end there I mean yeah that was a moment of Great drama. Glad he was okay. But he was clear. And I remember, actually, I was, I was watching the race with Stevie and we were having a discussion after that about how drivers tend to be not so bothered by an incident that 
is somebody else's fault or the result of a mechanical failure. But they can be very bothered by something that something's their fault. And we were we were sort of saying, oh, you know, that that's the kind of thing that will bother him. And sure enough, you know, when you saw the interview at the end of the race, you hardly ever see a driver that obviously upset. And you know, credit to him for doing the interviews and fessing up to his mistake and yeah credit to him for being open about it and showing us how he felt and yeah poor guy but he he's such a talent he's got he, he'll bounce back it's a rare mistake and it shouldn't yep. bother him too much there's always going to be the odd moment isn't there and there's no doubt that george is in good shape he almost bettered well he did finally uh no he would have bettered lewis if he'd finished the race in that position but his eyes, George's eyes during the interview afterwards, he's got lovely eyes, George. I don't know if you ever noticed, he's got the prettiest eyes of any Formula One drive. They really are like a little puppy, like a manga cartoon of a puppy. Great big <laughs> eyes. And they were so tearful. They were so doleful. I had a lump in my throat for him. I thought, oh, mm. George. But did you see how unimpressed Lewis seemed to be on the podium? You know, Mercedes work hard for their results these days. And when they get on the podium, there's got to be some relief. But Lewis's whole countenance, his tone was, he looked a bit sort of grumpy or defeated. And I'm wondering if in those last few laps, there was a discussion between the pit wall and the two Mercedes drivers, you know, Lewis, don't push George any harder. Because Lewis is saying, I can see George's tyres are shot, man. I can get past him. And that Lewis was told mm. to hold station, but he didn't because he was clearly right on top of George, right up his um, rear crash structure, let's call it that. <laughs> and maybe it was that that caused George to make that minor error where he glanced the wall and destroyed the car. I'm reading into it, but, you know, that's what we do, right? We speculate, we guess, we read between the lines. I wonder. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. No, no, that's an interesting thought. I dare say it was that overall picture of being in that pack of four cars that are so close together. You know, you're hunting down Norris in second place with Science in first just ahead and, you know, multiple world champion <laughs> Lewis Hamilton in the same car is right behind you. One lap to go. You could win the race. That's quite a yeah. lot of pressure. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. Whether Lewis was making it a little extra hard, maybe it wasn't. I, I don't know. I think there was quite enough pressure going on there as it was. It didn't look like he was being kind of extra bothered by Lewis, but who knows? It was a super, super exciting end to the race though and at the same time that they gave us Lewis on the podium you know it, it is a real shame that Russell had his race sport by that tiny tiny little error with such huge consequences I'm impressed with the Ferrari revival at the moment and I want to doff my hat to lovely Fred Vasseur who seems to be doing a fine job of getting that team calm and collected and making progress but how much of this is the influence of Fred Vasseur? Because that car was designed under the tenure of Matteo Bonotto. And, you know, without the car, you can't work. So I, th I think we have to, we have to, I feel like apologising to Matteo Bonotto because Ferrari have clearly got a great car this year, but Bonotto lost his job. 
I wonder why that is. Is that just the Italian way of slash and burn and blame culture? Who'd work for Ferrari? Would you do it? Uh, I think I'd, uh, I'd, 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 I'd double check very carefully to see that I didn't have um, an offer from somebody else who would be a bit less inclined to <laughs> find me at the drop of a hat first. Um, Vasseur <laughs> <laughs> uh, can hardly take much credit for the car that's on track this year but all of the operational aspects how the team's running is the kind of thing that he will have a more immediate effect on he certainly seems to be doing a good enough job but not so yeah i'm sure got a rather worse rap than he should have done for his 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 time there in any case it's terrific to see ferrari coming good again because i think even if you're not the biggest ferrari fan formula one where ferrari is constantly disappointing and not doing very well mm. yeah, is a second best Formula One. You know, Formula One, it's better when Ferrari can win. I've said this before, going to say it again. My, what's it called, the elevator pitch, you know, describe something in one sentence that you could share between floors yep. in a lift when you meet someone. My elevator pitch for Formula One is beat Ferrari at their own game. Yeah. That's what it yeah, boils yeah. down to, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So you're absolutely right. We need Ferrari to be at least the second best team, if not the best team, or certainly top three, to make the others who have beaten them look great. You know, this is Ferrari you're beating. I'm becoming more and more tifosi in my old age, you know. They uh, they set the standard, don't they? Yeah. If you don't have anything else to look to, it's Ferrari that sets the standard. One final thought, uh, two final thoughts on the race. Number one, Liam Lawson and his very special set of skills. Oh, my gosh. Another great performance, and he gets to drive again in Suzuka, which I'm very pleased about. There are rumours that he'll go to Williams. And I don't think Red Bull can afford to let him go to Williams. There's one thing not picking up one of your junior drivers, but another thing is allowing him to go to another team who are doing really well at the moment. And Williams are a big threat to um, Scuderia, not called Toroso, to AlphaTauri slash Hugo Boss, whatever they're going to be next year. So they can't afford, they're going to have to keep him. And I think this is bad news for Daniel Ricciardo. I wouldn't be surprised if Liam Lawson gets a second Red Bull drive alongside Max next year based on his outstanding performance in Formula One. I said he was good in F2 and he's doing an amazing job in F1. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Lawson. Absolutely. Again, standout performance. He's demonstrating that, you know, you can come in as a rookie and deliver to a pretty high level. Yeah, I agree. It does create a problem for both Red Bull in what do you do with all these drivers and a problem for Ricardo because he's, yeah, like you say, one of the people who will be most likely to be squeezed out if they want to keep Lawson in F1. Yeah. Regarding Williams, who I mentioned briefly a moment ago, They're in a similar situation to Ferrari, in my opinion, as well. James Vowles has come in from Mercedes, team principal, doing a wonderful job. But the car that was designed and developed last year under François-Xavier de Maison and Jost Capito is clearly a very good car. And in the hands of Albon... You know, it's in the top 10 or close to the top 10. That's a huge leap for Williams. And I know you're a great fan of Williams. That must make you feel good. It makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Alban, again, is, you know, really stepped it up from where he was a couple of years ago. And he's proving 
terrific value for Williams. They'll certainly want to hang on to him. And another good weekend for Williams and for Albon. And let's look forward to another good weekend for them this weekend at Suzuka. Now, so this is a very old school type episode of On Speed with just me and Zark. You may remember in the early days, we used to play the national anthem of a driver who won and sing their name. And usually when we heard this song, we sang Fernando Alonso's name. It scanned perfectly. But Carlos Sainz's name doesn't scan so well. But I have a solution. Listen. Carlos Sainz Vasquez de Castro Because that's his correct name using the full Spanish form. We, we can't, can't call him, him Junior because he's a two-times winner. So Carlos Sainz, Vasquez de Castro it is. Bravo. Forza, Carlos. Occasionally, before we do Gareth Jones on speed, we plan what we're going to talk about. And this week, I said to Zog, Zog, I've noticed a couple of things I'd quite like to talk about. Not just cars, some odd little things as well. And have you spotted anything that's particularly impressed you or got your attention? So, Zog, road cars that you love or are excited about, what have you seen recently? Well, the things that have cropped up that grabbed me were, uh, and these I haven't seen them physically uh, driving around the streets of West London yet, because they're both on the way, but the new Ford Mustang, 2024 model Ford Mustang GT, and the forthcoming Fiat Panda electric, or electric and hybrid, which are both you know, very well-established old names, old icons of the industry, really. But the Mustang kind of grabbed me because I guess it'll be the last generation of internal combustion engine, V8 engine Mustang. The torch has already been passed, really. You know, the you know, Ford introduced their Mach-E model with the Mustang name, which I think, you know, for all the reservations that we might have about using the Mustang name in that way, it's a smart bit of marketing for Ford to do to help launch an important new product line for them but the 24 mustang it's all old school this is your old school classic muscle car five liter v8 engine they call it the coyote that block i think don't they i think it's called the coyote engine the five liter certainly in the upper models in the ranges yeah is the coyote v8 uh, there's also a 2.3 liter eco boost option but i think i'd have the v8 <laughs> and and this is yeah so it's you know it's kind of the last flourish of this you know icon of late 20th century motoring of american motoring the road trip of enjoying a wide open spaces this is the last hurrah of the mustang and it's such an important car in the overall landscape of kind of psychogeography of automobile marks models types of cars performance cars, fun cars, Mm -hmm. sports cars. A run-out final version of the Mustang is something to celebrate. It's not tremendously different to the current model. There are tweaks, you know, designed sharper all round, some changes in the interior. But it's basically the same old muscle car we've known and loved. And it's just a little bit better, a little bit sharper, 
what's not to love? I know you love an American muscle car. I know you love the Mustang. Me too. We took one to Le Mans. Remember the GT we took to Le Mans? Absolutely, that was yeah, deeply yeah, satisfying. Yeah. The Mustang is going out with a blaze of glory, if I can quote the alarm, because there's the GTD, the Grand Touring Daytona model, which is a heck of a machine. There's a GT4 version and a GT3 version. And the GT3 version is going to be raced in IMSA and the WEC, I believe, next year. There will be a Ford Mustang competing with the Ferraris and the Aston Martins. And are we going to have a Corvette next year or are they gone? I don't know. But I love Ford. I want Ford at Le Mans. They have a great history at Le Mans. And when they brought the Ford GT back a few years ago and it won in its category at its first attempt, if I remember correctly, that was impressive. But I think a lot of that's down to Multimatic, who are the people responsible for the development of sports Mustangs, including the GT3, the GT4 and the GTD. I'd have any of them. Oh, I love the look of that GTD. That is the very definition of a muscle car. That rear wing, which hangs below a sort of S-shaped rear mount. I love that. That's just sexy and aerodynamically correct, as I understand as well. You know, with a wing upside down, you want the mounts on the side of the wing that do the least work. And in the case of a wing upside down on a car, that's the top side, not the underside. So Okay, right. I didn't know that. Yeah? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I love it. I love it, love it. I can't wait to see it at Le Mans next year. But talking about Mustang and stretching the brand, it relates to one of the cars that I want to tell you that i've noticed recently or i'm intrigued in and that is the volkswagen id gti which almost doesn't make any sense it's an electric car but it's an electric car that looks almost exactly and will perform almost exactly like a very modern golf gti now, Volkswagen had to reboot, didn't they? After the whole Dieselgate scandal, we haven't forgotten Volkswagen, we're still paying attention. After that, they had to distance themselves from the defeating device, the emissions defeating device that was discovered on their cars. And so they launched their whole ID program. Yep, this is the future for Volkswagen. We're called ID now. We're electric. We're rear wheel drive. That's us. And then some, what, five years into that program, suddenly they come out with a car that is hanging off the Golf's heritage in the way that the Mustang Mach-E hangs off the Mustang heritage. This little Golf, and it is quite small. And curiously, it is front-wheel drive, not rear-wheel drive like the rest of the VW electric cars. And I am quite taken with it because it is instantly a Golf. It's small, it's better looking than the ID series of cars, which seem to have these enormous slab-sized doors. They look more like an appliance than a car. But the new Mm. ID GTI looks like a golf, it looks like a car. Well done, clever work there, Volkswagen. You've weaseled your way back to your core product by going out through the side door and coming in again. Really smart. That, yeah, that's the one that impressed me recently. I have another, but before that, I've got to tell you about something I accidentally unearthed. Oh. We'll come to your panda in a minute, I promise, I promise. 
I've been writing a book about lorries. I was invited to do some piecemeal work about the history of commercial vehicles. Mm. And so I was researching British lorries of the 1950s and came across something I didn't even know could exist, let alone does exist. And that is an engine that was in the Comma R series or R type. So this was a 12-ton lorry from the 1950s. I used to see them around. They used to transport sheep and cattle and stuff. That classic comma wagon of the 1950s. What I didn't realise is that the engine in that truck was remarkable. Get this, Sog. Go on. It was a three-cylinder, horizontally opposed, two-stroke diesel with six pistons. Ah, uh, so yeah, 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 two pistons. Okay, so the way this is working is, if I'm imagining you've got a thing where this would have to be a diesel engine because what's happening is the two pistons in each cylinder are moving in opposition to each other. Yeah. So they'll move towards each other and then meet in the middle and then move apart again. And that compression stroke where they're coming together in the middle of the piston, basically piston number two is doing what the cylinder head would do in a one piston per cylinder engine. Yeah. That's interesting. Now you mentioned this, I've definitely seen, you know, diagrams I've read about engines like that before, but I don't think I'd ever read about a commercial application of one. So no, that's fascinating. It was widespread. It was called the TS3, which meant two stroke. Although there's some claim that comma actually bought a company, uh, I can't remember their name, but their initials were TS, and that's where it came from. But really, it means two-stroke. And mm. and this was really yeah. widespread. This was in tens of thousands of trucks, I would imagine, certainly thousands of trucks. Incredible. And it makes an amazing noise, a real roarty noise. And it had a roots blower, a bi-lobe interlocking compressor Supercharged, for the scavenging. Yeah. yeah. Oh, unbelievable. I feel like a historian. You know, historians, what do you call people who dig things up? Arch, um, archaeologists. Archaeologists. Archaeologists say that their job is about rewriting history. <laughs> Our view of history is constantly changing as we learn more. Yeah. And I was thrilled to learn about this engine. I can't believe I've never heard of this engine before, but it's from the same age that gave us that Deltic motor that was in British locomotives of the period, mm. which again was in a very complex multi-piston diesel motor. So hmm. uh, some learnings from that period there. Anyway, I had to tell you yeah, about no, no, that. Yeah, no, no, that's fascinating. Genuinely exciting. That's fascinating. Now then, you mentioned the Mustang, you know, the most archetypal of American car, the biggest selling coupe in the world, I believe, the Ford Mustang. Did you know that? Biggest selling coupe in the world. I think that was last really? year or the year before's figures. Yeah. yeah. You know, American archetype, and I know the next car, you mentioned it, the Panda, is like, the European archetype, a tiny, small, efficient thing. And is the new Panda sexy, interesting? Why is it interesting? Well, I think because um, two things. First of all, it's got classic Italian flair. It's brought Italian style to that tiny electric car sector. And this is also a sector where Fiat has excelled before. You know, the Panda has always been an absolutely cracking little car, tremendous value. And this is the other thing, apart from the fact that it will be bringing Italian good looks, it promises to be a much better value proposition. You know, it'll be a 20 grand rather than a 30 grand little city electric car. And we could do with city runarounds being cheaper. 
It's based on a concept that Fiat showed a few years ago, 2018, 2019, I think, with the Centoventi. That's it, Centoventi. Yeah, Centoventi. It is largely about a, you know design language and then various modular ideas, which are not all going to make it into the 2024 electric Panda, which I think we're going to see in the middle of the year. I think July maybe is when they say they'll be launching it. There was this idea of modularity in the batteries, for example. So you could get modular batteries rather than one single fixed battery in your car. That intriguing concept is not going to make it to the 2024 vehicle, maybe in future. But an affordable Fiat electric city car, you know, below the 500. I think that's a tremendous proposition and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it emerges in the flesh when we see it in the middle of next year. The new Panda will share some technology with the Fiat 600e which is around at the moment. I don't know if you've seen it, it's a very pretty little thing but it is the first car I've ever seen that wears what appears to be mascara or eyeshadow. I don't know if you've seen the grill. Have a look now, if, if you can, at the grill of the new Fiat 600e. It's got a face like no other car I've ever seen. It is the most anthropomorphized car I think I've ever seen. It is immeasurably cute. Slightly droopy eyes yeah. is the look. Yeah, it's just cute. Yeah, it's like the eyelids are slightly like it's considering you slightly droopy but the the way that they use the turn indicators at the side of that headlamp to make it look like it's wearing eyeshadow or eyeliner as well i think is just great i love it i think they're in good shape aren't they fiat at the moment they're consolidating all their platforms with the chrysler stuff and i think it's going to share a lot of technology with a new couple of jeeps smaller jeeps i mean it's been going on for a while now there is some jeep crossover and i think it shares the platform with the citroen c3 i think i think you're right uh, also little city cars is really that is fiat's bag and yeah, uh, yeah i think they're gonna I'm, I'm expecting them to kind of knock it out of the park let's see if it lives up to expectations yeah um oh we actually a couple other things i forgot to mention earlier a couple of some really just nice little design features in there at least on what we've seen so far it looks like it will have suicide doors um we can't call uh, them that they're called carriage doors there carriage doors they'll always be suicide doors to me <laughs> they will and i still love them so i'm, I'm really looking forward to that the car that you were talking about that the Panda is inspired by was a concept from a few years ago, 2019, called, like you said, the Cento Venti, which means 120, because it was released in the year of Fiat's 120th anniversary. But the new Panda, I believe, will come out in the year of Fiat's 125th anniversary. And I did a quick translation, which means it should be called the Cento Venticinque, the 125. Cento Venticinque. Yeah. I mean, it's got a nice sort of Cento Venticinque. Yeah. Cento Venticinque. Yeah, it has a nice rhythm to it, but I think that's a little bit long to really be a catchy name for the car. Will it be the E-Panda? Panda E? I think E-Panda. I think you're right. But, you know, there is value in giving something a name that is so difficult to remember that it becomes memorable. Here's the best possible example in the universe, as far as I know, of that. And that is a town called Llanfair Pusquin Gisgo Gerwe Llanfair Silia Brindrobwyll Ogogoch. 
Now, what most people don't realise, that that town in North Wales, which is famous for the sign on the train station, the name of that town was an utter fabrication. It was two small towns who merged together to get noticed on the railway line. So they had a competition, and it was a cobbler from Unis Morn, from Anglesey, who came up with the name to make it so difficult to remember that you had to learn it and therefore it was cemented in your brain. So, yeah, if they decided to call the panda the Cento Venti Cinque, it might help. I see the argument you're making here, Gareth, but i got to say, you know, I have tried to learn the name of that station, <laughs> that town, several times. It has not stuck in my memory at all well. Whereas if, if they decided to call their town Fish... You'd remember or that. Shark. <laughs> I think I'd remember that, you know. Oh, yeah. Just a guess. I feel I may have let you down as a friend and as a uh, Welshman and as never, a, an educator never. not to have taught you how to say Slambad Push Wing. I can't even and say And you it. have tried. I have tried. You have tried. In fact, <laughs> I made a programme about it. It was an item on how once upon a time where we taught Fred Dinage how to say it. And if Fred can do it, anyone can. Anyone can. <laughs> really. Um, listen, we've got to start wrapping this up, but I want to mention one yep. other car before we vanish oh yeah i think you mentioned yes go on yeah this is a car that's been around for a long while and then i became massively disappointed when i realized it wasn't going to do one of the jobs that it was initially intended for i'm talking about the aston martin valkyrie mm. i remember saying on the show a few months ago wouldn't it be great if we had an open ultra gt series where anyone could compete any car will find a balance of performance thing that would allow these cars to compete. And I thought that because I was disappointed that Valkyrie wasn't going to race at Le Mans. Hmm. However, it was announced recently that Aston and a US-based sports car squad, Heart of Racing, are going to attempt to run an Aston Martin not only in IMSA in 2025, but in the WEC, meaning Le Mans as well. So I might get something I've wished for. You know to say? Be careful for what you wish. A Valkyrie at Le Mans? How good is that, Sam? Sounds pretty incredible. Well, yeah, fingers crossed that actually happens. Just explain how it is that given Aston Martin decided they couldn't or wouldn't run a Valky previously, what is Harder Racing's approach that makes them think they can run it in 2025? What are they doing? I think the answer is probably money. Aston Martin were funding their GT programme at the point when Lawrence Stroll converted Racing Point into the Aston Martin Formula One team and directed an awful lot of Aston Martin PR money into Formula One, which meant... We can't do Le Mans WC anymore. However, Heart of Racing, they're there for completely different reasons. They're a professional race team. They're presumably going to buy the car from Aston Martin, I'm guessing, with support. I'm curious, though, because there are limits on the output of cars, aren't there, at Le Mans? And I'm pretty sure the Valkyrie, the road version, produces more power than you're actually allowed to in the LMH category but there is a balance of performance it will throttle the car but at last we might get to see the valkyrie oh please let it happen please 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 let it happen so do you have any control over this are you good at 
wishing? Can you make stuff happen? I really want this to happen. I love that car. Apparently not. Apparently not. <laughs> I've, uh, I, as far as I recall, any of those times that I have wished for a particular outcome, <laughs> let's just say that if I did have any kind of you know supernatural, magical control over the world, it would look very different to how it does right now. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Looking at the world around me, no, I have no magical wish fulfillment powers. Sadly. I'm pretty sure that if you had those fulfillment powers, most cars would be Porsches and most women would either look like Debbie Harry, Marilyn Monroe, or the Scandinavian pop singer Robin. You may not be far wrong there. I think you've, uh, uh, yeah. You're certainly describing a world that I'd like the same one. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I would like all those three things in the world as well. Song, thank you for talking cars and nonsense with me, my friend. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And say bye bye. See you next time. Bye-bye. And that's it from me. See you for the next On Speed. Bye-bye. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones On Speed is made in London by Wizbang. Gareth Jones On Speed! Me! Me! Me!